The Persistent and Nasty podcast is a series of interviews and informal discussions with inspiring women and other marginalised voices in theatre, film and beyond. From actors to activists, we aim to amplify these voices and invite the world to stay nasty. Hello you gorgeous lot and welcome to another episode of the Persistent and Nasty Podcast Edinburgh Festival Fringe Series 2022. Elaine here, I hope that you're all looking after yourselves, staying well, keeping hydrated and doing whatever you need to do for you. Today I chat with director Jen McGregor and performer Catherine Bissett about their show The Masks of Oscar Wilde. We have really brilliant discussion about the reclaiming of the word queer and what that means now in comparison with what it meant in Wilde time. Also the fact that Catherine is a woman of colour, playing a queer white man. Um, Such a fascinating conversation um, about this play and I hope that you all enjoy it. You can follow us on all social media, Twitter at Persistent Nasty, Instagram at Persistent and Nasty, Facebook Persistent and Nasty. Send us an email to persistentandnasty at gmail.com and you can also follow Louise and I on social media. Louise is at Ms. Louise Oliver on both Twitter and Instagram and I am at Elaine Stirrett on Twitter and at Elaine.Stirrett on Instagram. For today's episode, oh, I suggest. What do I suggest? I think I feel, I'm feeling like a, a vodka martini, dirty vodka martini, um, champagne. Um, I mean, really, whatever you want, right? It's the thing. Oscar Wilde would have whatever he wanted, so you have whatever you want, and that may just be a good old cup of tea. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Today I am joined by Jen McGregor and Catherine Bissett and we are going to chat about their show, um, the development of it and where you can see it. Obviously all the key information and get that audience in there. So who would like to go first? So we are doing the Masks of Oscar Wilde at Greenside at Riddles Court. Um, this was a project that I found out about when they advertised on Facebook for a director, because uh, it's a it's a Canadian company. It's registered in Quebec, um, and that is where it began its life. Um, and the playwright Shaul Ezer uh, is Canadian. Uh, well, he's originally Iranian, um, but moved from Iran to Canada. Um, so I sort of looked at that and went, "Oh, that's that's an interesting perspective." Because you know, usually when you see Oscar Wilde plays at the Fringe, they're they're very white, they're very British middle class, they're usually specifically English middle class. Um, and I thought, well, there's a there's a perspective I haven't seen before, um, a sort of Iranian Quebecois perspective. That's fascinating. Um, and so I applied, uh, got the job, found out they wanted to cast locally as well. Um, so I saw a lot of uh, fantastic local actors for it. I found it really difficult to to narrow it down to just two, um, but found two absolutely brilliant actors making their fringe debuts, uh, one of whom was Catherine, and the other is Connor O'Dwyer. Uh, So they are both Edinburgh-based, and it's a really nice combination of uh, people coming from elsewhere. Our our producer is Canadian, but um, 
producer, production manager, stage manager, multitasker, uh, is Canadian. It's the French. Everybody's got to do it, right? Oh, they really do. They really do. I mean, it's like, yeah. <laughs> There's no such thing as like the end of your job description during the fringe. <laughs> no. So no. that was how I found my way to it. Um, how about you, Catherine? And I hadn't been to an audition for ages. And Jen's auditions are great because they're workshops. So they, they tend not to be, um, they're really interactive and they tend not to be kind of just one-to-one. They tend to be a whole kind of, yeah, a, a whole kind of, I don't know, cornucopia of interesting things to do with other actors. And you don't even feel that you're in an audition, really. You kind of forget you're in an audition and you do a lot of dancing and jumping about and um, scenes with other actors and things. And I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. It'll be a good laugh. And so I went along and um, it was great fun. I had no expectations of getting the part because it was, as Jen said, I, I didn't have that background. And I just assumed, you know, because it's sort of play about Oscar Wilde, I kind of thought, do I fit any of these roles, <laughs> really? I mean, I'm half Jamaican, um, um, 50-year-old mother of two teenagers, <laughs> and just thought, well, you know, I don't, I don't know if I fit any of these parts, but um, it was, it, it's such an interesting approach to the play that, um, yeah, I thought, well, maybe, maybe, it depends how they approach it, but I had a really good time at the audition and then found out that I got it, and it, it was really interesting because at the audition, Connor and I really got on really well there was a kind of really nice connection between myself and Connor even though I didn't know his name at the time and he was just this really young exuberant energetic um great actor there so I had no idea he had been cast until um quite late on actually so it was a really nice it was a really nice to discover that because he's he's great he's fantastic actor and he's um he's absolutely brilliant to work with just one of the best people I've ever worked with I think um and we had so much fun uh, doing it so yeah that's how I was cast and it was um it's a real challenge actually because it's I don't know how many parts I'm playing probably four something like that um so it yeah. is quite a and Connor's playing about nine I can't even I think I've run out I can't even remember how many parts he's playing now but um maybe slightly less than that now but um yeah it's it's um it's a phenomenal challenge as an actor because it is quite a it, it's quite a sort of um yeah, it's it's an interesting approach where we're playing pretty much, you know, all the characters in the play and um, between the two of us. But yeah, it's great fun. Really good fun. Yeah. I love that that you like didn't even know his name, but you got that connection. And I'm sure that's yeah. like, Jen, that's about the space that you create um, and just that kind of joy of being in a workshop that doesn't feel like an addition because we all know what that's like that those of us that are performers it's like oh I mean you want an addition but also you really don't <laughs> you just go and play yeah. and have some fun um so that is just a lovely experience to be in and just so nice that you felt that connection and yeah. you know that that's clearly I'm sure will be feeding in throughout the show as well which is yeah. just will be great to see so tell us exactly the masks of Oscar Wilde tell us exactly what we are going to see when we come along to this show so it's a it's an exploration of Wilde's life through the the various sort of social masks that he wears um but it is also kind of an exploration of someone who might be uh some kind of reincarnation, possibly, of Wilde himself. Um, so it, it takes a form largely of a, a sort of confrontation between a, a lecturer and a student. Um, so we've got the professor who Catherine plays, who 
is uh, giving this lecture about Wilde as a literary figure and trying quite hard to stay away from the, the questions of Wilde's sexuality and his downfall and all of that kind of thing. So she's basically trying to get through the whole thing without mentioning Bozy. Um, and the student is absolutely not going to let her do that. Um, and gradually over the course of this, uh, Oscar starts to emerge and speak through uh, the professor. Um, so it's, we're telling this through a combination of um, some kind of physical storytelling elements, because obviously lots of multi-rolling and things like that have got to be nice and clear. Um, we also have uh, some slides designed by Mark Bolsover, because when I got the when I got, got the job, one of the things that was in the script was that there are lecture slides uh, backing up what the what the professor is saying. And I took the decision to expand that into there being slides that are in the world of the student and Oscar Wilde. And so the, this sort of vision of Wilde's world that the student has is rendered through some slides that are completely diametrically opposed to what the lecturer is bringing in. So there is a visual element backing that up. Um, and then after that, it's just down to Catherine and Connor doing some fabulous acting. <laughs> I love it. Um, Catherine, how does it feel like that kind of sense of, you know, as a female getting to play such a well-renowned playwright who yeah. is male, but also a queer male? And I think, yeah. like, the thing yeah. about that, you know, there's so much conversation at the moment about um, queerness, which is great, and the, re the reclamation of that word yeah. as well. But obviously, at that time for Oscar Wilde to have been queer and to have been called queer is such a... Yeah. A, yeah can't even find the words that I'm trying to say oh, <laughs> you yeah. know what I'm trying to say over absolutely. Zoom <laughs> absolutely he is an astonishing figure you know I mean I think we all know a bit about Oscar Wilde don't we I mean it's kind of one of those things where there are a lot of people who know a lot about Oscar Wilde and there are some people who know a bit about Oscar Wilde not many people know nothing about Oscar Wilde but what was extraordinary to me was how actually even for his time how kind of out there he was really I mean I mean he did stand out he didn't make any attempt really to hide it I mean he um and at the same time you know obviously he fell foul of uh, of a society which really hated it and he he also fell foul, foul of his own arrogance a little bit because what I did not know and one of the pivotal parts of the play is is how he messed up in court a bit and, you know, he, his wit and his, you know, this incredible intelligence he had. Um, and Jen's talked about this, and I think it's just absolutely right, that he was brilliant when he was um, prepared. He was brilliant when he had thought about what he was going to say and, and these extraordinary concepts that he had, you know, nailed down to these beautiful epigrams and these incredibly hysterically funny kind of um, little snippets of thought. But when he was in on the other stage when he was in court he was really lost and and he misplayed it and you know that's something I didn't know and he yeah he he kind of and Bosey of course was tragic because he you know we're trying to we all the way through the process as well when we were um rehearsing we were trying to figure out what his relationship with Bosey was really like and you know who was who wore the trousers in that relationship you know who was dominant and you know did Bosey really muck him around? Was he sort of really kind of 
um, desperately in love with this man who treated him badly or, you know, what was the dynamic between them? And it was fascinating to actually explore all of that um, in the play. Oh, we've lost Catherine. Oh, we've just lost Catherine. Oh, no, she'll, she'll jump back. Maybe you can pick up on that, um, Jen. Certainly. Just like, yeah. It's, it's one of the things that really fascinates me coming at this now, because obviously that I... I cut my teeth at the fringe as a teenager, as a little baby bisexual, seeing plays about Oscar Wilde, right? And he was one of those play, playwrights that was absolutely formative for me because I think quite often if you're a young queer person, like he's one of the first artists you come to, or he certainly was in the 90s, one of the first artists you come to who is historical, enduring, and known to have been actively queer like it's not a kind of oh he had some close friends who knows (laughs) what happened there like no this would this all came out in court like even during his second trial he told people exactly what the love that dare not speak its name actually Mm. was and there's something about that and there's something about the fact that Wilde remains this transgressive figure in many ways that really informed what I wanted to do with this piece because I really didn't want it to be a cosy canter through the life of Wilds. Like, you know, that, that's been done many times, nothing wrong with it. It's not what I personally wanted to, to bring to it. Yeah. And there, there were two things that really, really stood out to me, one of which was what continues to be transgressive about Wild. And this was why it felt really important to have people from various marginalised backgrounds involved in it. And the other thing was uh, was actually his socialism, which if there if there's a chance to talk about it at some point, I would really really love to because that oh, is definitely. just that's something that that Shaw, the playwright, has chosen to emphasise. Um, that I have to admit, I'd never seen emphasised in a work on Wilde before because I think we all think of him as being a playwright whose work is very much about the drawing room comedies and who was all about moving in society, even if he didn't come from that society. Um, And I found that really super interesting because he is actually this chameleon figure who has to code switch his way into the role that he eventually is remembered for. And there's so much that ties in with like today's thoughts about how do you, how do you invent yourself, express yourself, be yourself? What what does any of that mean? What, what what is it, and how do you do it, and how do you how do you remake who you are? And yeah, just so many things that were were sort of rattling around in there as as ways of partly bringing audiences to a, a perception of Wild that might not be familiar to them. Um, so if you just think of him as like that cosy guy who wrote The Importance of Being Earnest, which is quite funny, isn't it? But maybe it's a bit stodgy and maybe we've all seen like a Bill Kenwright production where, you know, they're <laughs> wheeling out Nigel Havers, who was probably in the original production, bless him. And, you know, like that that's that's fine. And again, you know, great. Not dunking on that at all. But there's more. There's there's yeah. so much more available within this. And that was the important thing was just going there is there is a lot more and wild is not just for who you immediately think it's for you know it, it's not yeah. just for a, an audience of, of sort of you know bust in pensioners who want to have a snooze through the Wednesday matinee 
again, that's fine. Love a Wednesday matinee snooze, but yeah. but there's more. And you know, yeah. but casting in in Connor, casting a, a young queer man, and in, in Catherine's case, casting casting a woman of color, and all of that. Like, mm. It was important just right from the start to go. This is this is not this is not the wild that you remember from the Stephen Fry movie in the nineties. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Catherine's back with us, which is great. Um, so, <laughs> so I'm so sorry, my my laptop just died. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about it at all. It's the it's the joy of technology and also not sometimes. Um, so please don't worry about it. Um, yeah, just that thing. Catherine about um being a woman of color and yeah. getting to play yeah. this very well-known white man, quite yeah. quite queer man. Yeah. Um and I love that you've gone down this line, Jen, with the cast. And I think it's absolutely brilliant and really um what's needed because as you say if you're going to do something about somebody like Wilde, it needs to come from a different point of view because we've seen all the yeah. other stuff. Um so yeah. yeah, kind of going back to that idea for you, Catherine, yeah. of getting to play him. Yeah. How how, how is it, it going? Oh yeah, he. It's um. I hope it's going all right. I, it's um. <laughs> it's quite uh. Jen's nodding her head. Quite, her thumbs are up as well. So right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, it, it's, it's, right. <laughs> it's um. Do you know what it's um. It is challenging, you know. I mean, even finding Wilde's voice and um is is really challenging. And I I did do a lot of research actually, and I know, but I'm not I can't caricature his voice. I'm a woman and I'm, you know, there's no point in me trying to be Stephen Fry, but at the same time, trying to get the familiarity. It's the familiarity of the voice, maybe in people's heads that that is most important. Um and the way he was, it's it's the way he I think probably stood, walked, swaggered, you know, it's that it's just trying to get that whole kind of being of wild more than trying to be a copy of him, I think. Um, and just trying to convey that to, to an audience and hopefully it's going okay. And, and I think, you know, there's a parts where we're playing bits from the plays. There's a couple of bits from very well-known bits from plays as well. And um, I just find it really funny <laughs> just trying playing Bracknell and which is a bucket list thing to play right I mean you know I mean I'm never going to be able to play her again but it's 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 mm. really mm. <laughs> but it's really quite well I never thought in a million years I would get to play Lady Bracknell ever and I think you know just having that and again it's that it's the comedy it's the timing of it um and playing off Connor which kind of gives the audience the I think we get quite a lot of laughs during that bit because it's so familiar with people. In fact, there was one before I got COVID, there was um, a woman in the audience. I will never forget this. Who was sitting on the side and we were doing the Bracknell scene and she was mouthing the words along with me. <laughs> and it was lovely. And she was kind of, you know, in her 60s, 65, the sort of, you know, the sort of person I would have thought, oh, maybe she, maybe this isn't her cup of tea. Maybe she's, maybe she was expecting a kind of white wild, you know, the wild that, that Stephen Fry did kind of, and she was mouthing along and she caught my eye and she grinned at me. She just gave me this biggest grin that she was just having. And then afterwards she said, oh, I love that. I just, you know, I played Lady Bracknell, you know, how many ever years ago. And then, um, yeah, she was just kind of, so it's, yeah, it's great. And I think, I think the way that the play is written 
means that because my principal character is the professor, um, I'm playing the characters through the professor, which makes it which makes it sort of less of a mind jump to think, oh, why is this black woman playing wild? In that I'm the character is coming through me as the, the main pr principal character is the professor. So it's got maybe less of a sort of a jump than people might think when they watch it, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I think there's also something in that, I guess, as an actor, that you get to have even more fun with that then, that you yeah. don't feel as constricted by that sense of, I am Oscar Wilde. That's right. Exactly right. It, yeah, exactly right. You don't have to be, because it would be so, I mean, for if I was a white male actor, I would feel very intimidated by the fact that people would expect me to be exactly like Stephen Fry, because that was such a beloved portrayal of, of Oscar Wilde. Whereas I don't have that pressure. Um, when As soon as people see me, they can't expect me to be that. <laughs> so uh, it does give me a lot more freedom to do it my way but just still try and get the essence of him um and his beautiful writing you know there was um there's 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 a bit from De Profundis at the end which I have to really try and concentrate and stop myself from crying when I do because it, it is so beautiful um and it's just trying to get the the sincerity of it you know across more than being a caricature of the of Wilde himself it's the it's the meaning of the monologue more than anything that matters. Um, and it's still meaningful. It's still incredibly meaningful now. What he was saying um, about society not having a place for him is very moving um, and very profound for whether you're a gay man or, or a black person or anybody. The, the meaning of those words are still incredibly, incredibly profound, I think. Um, so, yeah, it's more about that than anything else than being a yeah, a copy of anybody yeah and and also as an audience member I don't want to see a copy I want to see something else yeah. so and I yeah. think that that's that's great and um so obviously there's the relationship so how how does that go within this version <laughs> can you not tell me you both lead to each other like <laughs> <laughs> is it spoilers do we need to just kind of go i it's it's an sorry jen do you want to come in or do you no, go for it the relationship with Bo, the relationship with bozy is interesting in this because really interesting um from the professor as, as jen's already kind of indicated from the professor's point of view she can't stand the idea that he even existed because she, the way she sees it is he's wrecked his life you know if it wasn't for bozy Wilde would have might have produced another 10 plays and you know the professor is I think extremely angry with Posey for for um what she perceives as ruining his life and so the play then explores his relationship and the way it kind of the way that Shaw's written it it's almost as if I think he perceives Bosey as quite being quite manipulative of of Wilde and um, was able to use his beauty and his age and, you know, obviously Wilde was obsessed with, with youth and, and used that really to get what he wanted. And the, the real kind of, the real kind of thing that we explore is how we, yeah, it's quite painful actually, the way that it's sort of explored, I think, because you can really sort of see Wilde's vulnerability, I think, in his relationship mm -hmm. with Bosey. Um, even though we don't quite know 
what the dynamic was at all times, it really shows his vulnerability, even though he was the older man, even though he was the great literary writer and, you know, the, the apostle of aestheticism in London, the actual um, king of the world all the time, he was so vulnerable with, with Bosey. That's how it's really written. And Bosey really had him wrapped around his finger and, and as a consequence got dragged down this pathway, which led to his ruin, really. Um, and that's kind of how it's portrayed. And Connor is brilliant. I mean, he is. He's fabulous. He is absolutely brilliant at playing Bosey and against Wild and um, the way he, yeah, the way he manipulates. And he is young, and you yeah. know, because Connor as well is a young, very good-looking male actor. He really does have that incredible presence where you can see him being able to I feel manipulated when Connor goes into Bosey you know Wilde's got that line that he speaks in court about the the joy and hope and glamour of life that lies before young That's people right. and you can see that in Connor it's disgusting he's got it a ridiculous amount of energy he is, just, <laughs> he is just so beautiful and sort of I know and that energetic use and he has that Bosey mm. energy in the sense that he you know, he he. You can absolutely see Wilde just doing anything Bosey asked him to do. You um, can also see he's got a, Connor's got a lot of sympathy for for Bosey because there, there's a bit that uh, that Shaw highlights in the text about the the fairly horrific background that Bosey came from. Because yeah, sure, I mean, in terms of class yeah. and money and all that, very privileged. But yeah. you know, his father was horrendously abusive. Um, yeah. And Bosey's not had a great time of it. So the, the sort of manipulative aspects of his character, um, while the abuse he suffered doesn't necessarily excuse that, it does explain it to yeah, some yeah, extent. Yeah. So for, for Connor, that gives him a, a way into understanding yeah. where some of this might have been coming from. Um, yeah. And it's, it's really interesting as well. It, one of the things that, that came up, that there's a character who unfortunately got cut along the way who who was the um, apparently Wilde's first lover, Robbie Ross, a Robbie Canadian Ross. journalist. And uh, he was also considerably younger than Wilde, um, but seems to have seems to have been a lot more confident in his sexuality at a young age. Um, mm. And that sounds like that there may be something similar with Bosey too. This is something that I find really, really interesting. You know, as someone who is part of the LGBTQ, etc., um, who remembers the last days of Section 28 and who remembers the days before, uh, you know, before queer people could marry and things like that. This is something that I sometimes find really interesting when I'm looking at, at Gen Z as they're coming up with this completely different attitude to it, with this yeah. kind of gorgeous level of confidence about yeah. it. And there's something about looking at that and going, oh, wow, that I, I can't imagine being like that at your age. Is that is that a thing now? And on the one hand, I'm so happy for you. And on the other hand, I envy you. And on the other, I'm just so curious about what that even is. And it, it brings, it, it's an interesting thing within the character of Wild. I think that idea of finding, finding a level of confidence within that further into your adulthood. Mm. 
and possibly not even having known yourself for what you were early on. Um, you know, the good old time in the closet that so many of us used to spend <laughs> in our, as part of our formative experiences. So there, there's something in that as well, that that's kind of a, a, an undercurrent within the piece that's been of particular interest to me. Um, that, that question of how you how you relate across the generations and also, of course, of how that would be read now, because um, Wilde is a beloved figure, but we're also having this conversation as a society about what it is for someone to have a relationship with a person who's considerably younger than them and what kind of power dynamic that is and what what the factors are playing into that and yeah. Is it okay? Is it not? Is it personal choice? Is it something that we should be wary of? Like, yeah. and it's it's complex. And this is something that always excites me is work that work that looks at complexities and difficult questions and things that feel like they should have a very, very clear answer, but it turns out that real life is super complicated and people have all sorts of different feelings on things so yeah that's uh yeah it's a really it is a really interesting one that one isn't it that idea of like age gap relationships and where we place them now and like Catherine you were saying that idea of how manipulative Bozy is and how um Mm. vulnerable Wild Mm. is with him and you know I think lots of us probably have that idea of the professor like he ruined him and all of that I think what you kind of get from Wilde is that that was always going to happen anyway no matter which way you went and who it was because whatever that vulnerability or that lack of what that lack of self I guess yeah and that point was able to be used yeah and do you know what's really interesting is that Jen was saying, you know, we, we were talking about this and it's it, it's presented in the play and it doesn't give you any answers. But I think this is a good thing is that there was definitely an uncomfortable element with Wild um, with younger boys. And, you know, some of them, I think, were pretty young um, and they for sure there was definitely also an element of maybe only taking advantage. But, you know, if and Jen said this. Um, when we were rehearsing that you know you've got an older man who has got champagne and you know he's terribly clever and um and what's not to like if you're a young boy and you know if you know inviting up to rooms and have some champagne and have some and for sure you know in any language wild shouldn't have done that quite possibly um in anybody's language and, and at the same time you know with with the Bosey relationship you know, you you get a sense that he, you know, there was a genuine love there. There's a really uncomfortable, it's really interesting because there's a speech in it, um, which is the famous one, um, which I which again is in the play, which is the love that dare not speak its name, which I was fascinated to read when he did it in court, got equal amounts of booze and applause, I think. Um, and, and, and I think that's probably probably it like equal amounts of booze as applause in the sense that he was basically being very candid about this 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 obsession with youth 
this, you know, this obsession with young men that he has. And he was equating it with great works of art. You know, he was justifying it by saying, you know, it's like Plato's philosophy. It's like Michelangelo. It's like all these beautiful things that we all embrace as art. So what's wrong with it? And he was he was casting it as intellectual and, you know, and, and dignified and noble. Um, and it's a really interesting defense. Um, and he's saying the world does not understand. And I think there's a conflation of two things in that speech. I think there's a conflation of youth and a conflation of homosexuality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's and it's a shame because the 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 youth part is the more tricky part. And, you know, do you know what I mean? It's it's kind of, it's the really tricky part about it where you think, oh, if they hadn't been 16 or 17 or however old they were, um, you know, it, it almost would be, he would be less controversial. He would have just been a gay man who was sort of persecuted. But it's the youth part, I think, that makes it difficult um, because they were clearly very young men. The, the court scene, which is one of my favourite scenes to, to act it, I have to say, which is um, really really lovely to act actually which is where Connor is pursuing me um and it's a sort of game of cat and mouse in the court um where it is clear from Carson's evidence that the lawyer that Wilde has had relationships with very young men and Wilde had lied to his own counsel about that and you know he gets the rug pulled from under him pretty quickly um and there was not really anywhere to go from there. And, you know, it was, so it was, it was a, yeah, it's a really interesting and complicated private life he had, I think, mm-hmm. which um, is, is, isn't easy just to kind of put in a box. Um, yeah. And it's also, it's also interesting that like when we're talking, when we're talking about the, the youth of these, these men that Wilde had relationships with, we are talking about people who would be, in today's terms, above the age of consent. Yeah. Um, so it is in that mm. that strange area of things that are, or would today be, legal, yeah. but still feel kind of dodgy because, you know, if you're, yeah. you know, Wild was a similar age to me, I'm just coming up on 40 and I have to admit, if I saw someone my age, you know, courting 16 year olds I would be a bit like that is not cool maybe don't do that yeah yeah I also I'm really interested in the like and you touched on it I think Catherine as well about the homosexuality of it right like we look at these figures in history and um, the men who have had relationships with much younger females tend not to be as vilified as those who have had much uh, relationships with um, same sex and much younger. Mm -hmm. And I find that really, um, well, it's patriarchy, right? So they just like let it go. Whereas Wilde is totally vilified for that, yet we're not having similar conversations about others. We're not, you know, Lewis Carroll. Yeah, Lewis Carroll. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Like we're not. We're not talking about that. And actually, that's even, they weren't of legal age. No, no, no. So we're in a whole other thing. Um, and I think that's something that you touched on, Jen, this new generation, like the generation uh, Z and Z, whatever, however you want to say it. And um, like, it's, they give me so much hope in so many ways. I'm like, oh my God, like, 
to to be a teenager now is horrific but then also they're so brilliant and I'm like yeah they are going to change things which is great that that really jumped out to me and I'm just really aware of time as well but I want so Jen to get back to the socialist point that yeah the writer has um, really pushed forward in this would be great to hear about like it's not it doesn't dominate the play but it's there in a way that I've not really seen before and like I think a lot of the time people forget that that Wilde wrote The Soul of Man Under Socialism. His first play was Vera or The Nihilists, and it was a total flop, and it was set in Russia, and it was about revolutionaries, and like nobody liked it, and it never gets done now. And if anyone out there wants to give me a production of Vera or The Nihilists, like I'll direct it, I'll dramaturg it, I'll come and sit in the audience for it, whatever. Somebody come talk to me about this, please. Um, because it's super fascinating and it couldn't be further from an ideal husband and the importance of being earnest from from the wild bangers that we all know um but he there's a line that Catherine speaks in the play that is from the soul of man under socialism um which is to to recommend thrift to the poor is both grotesque and insulting it's like advising a man who's starving to eat less and every time I hear that Mm. I, I I see the entire fucking cabinet in my head. Yeah. I'm just like, yeah. You... Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. This should not be stabbing me this much in 2022. What the fuck? Yeah. Um, sorry, you did say we could swear, so I am. Um, oh, absolutely, you can swear. <laughs> Do not worry about that. Shot through our piece is the story of the Happy Prince. Right. And when we first started, there, there was a section that wasn't in it that we, we sort of reinstated uh, part of the way through this. And The Happy Prince, if you don't know Wilde's fairy stories, is a story about a, a little swallow and a golden statue of a prince. The statue is standing above his people that he never spent enough time with him. He was alive and he is realising the misery and poverty in which many of them live. And he instructs this little bird to strip the jewels and the gold off of him piece by piece and go and distribute them among his people. It is a fairy story about the redistribution of wealth to the populace. And it was in the moment when we realised that, it unlocked the the whole thing. Like This idea of the, the stripping away of everything that the happy prince is ties in with the, the stripping away of everything that Wilde eventually became and what he what he ultimately gave us, like what he as an artist gave of himself to the world and what we took from him. Um, but this this story, it blew my mind when it hit me because I've known this story since I was a kid, right? And I've never really thought about it that way. And it was only putting it side by side yeah. with the soul of man under socialism. It was only actually thinking about it. It was only actually fucking singing Bella Chow in the rehearsal room that made yeah. us go, oh. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Because I, I think, I think people often forget how critical Wilde actually is of the society that he lives in. Because we all know it so well now. Because it feels so comfortable now, and we don't look at the uncomfortable bits anymore. We don't look at the bits that that actually get specific about it. Which you know. I suspect has a lot to do with that line from the importance of being earnest. Don't speak slightingly of society, Algernon. Only people who can't get into it do that. Mm. And true, up to a point, that was wild. He was not in it and of it. And he was criticising it. And then it's, when it becomes more veiled, he becomes more successful. So 
that having that aspect of wild as socialist in there is so so interesting yeah and something that I really want to come back to in other work further along the line because what Shaw's done in putting it there really interests and excites me but there's more there is there is a rediscovery yeah. of wild that is waiting to happen I think mm-hmm. and that will take us to places that are as interesting if not more so because like I say yeah I, I came to wild in the 90s I remember when it was important and transgressive just to have the representation of him as a queer figure because like, there's a film about wild from the 50s that does not touch on that at all <laughs> because it's the 50s and so to to do that for that generation was important there is another wild that I think will be important to this generation yeah and I, I hope that that we just happen to have caught the start of that. And I hope that it will happen further. And again, anyone in Scottish theatre or UK theatre more generally who wants to talk to me about that further, please yeah. do. Like, Get yourself into my DMs because I will talk about this with anyone until the cows come home. It's <laughs> obsessing me somewhat at the moment. I do love how... Um... What I'm loving from this conversation is both of you, from both of you, is how um, much you love this play and Mm. how much you've loved this experience. Like it's really coming across and what it's opened for you and different thoughts and different processes and um, different ideas and springboards, Jen, like that that you're talking about of how we move things forward. We keep all of the stuff that, you know, was part of it that has to come, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of that has to come with us, but we then can start to look at different aspects of things. And I really think that that's a beautiful way to start looking more at art and how we use it to mm. tell our stories. Um, just before we finish up, I would love to know a little bit more about both of you and your pathways into the industry. So either you can, Catherine, you want to go? Yeah, I'll go first. I, I never had anyone ask me this question. I, I go blank. <laughs> I know, I so it is like one of those ones of when did I start? How when many did I, I know? When did I start? When um, yeah, so um, well, it's all to do with Jen, really. Um, I I started in Rackley School where Jen is um one of their amazing tutors when I was forty eight, which is had never acted before that in my life, um, and I only went because I thought oh, I need a hobby on a Tuesday afternoon. Um, And this looks like great fun. And I actually remember sending an email to Stephen, who's head of the the school, saying something like, "Um, I don't think I'm very good um, at acting, but I'm really interested in just doing some workshops, (laughs) something like that. Here I am. Um, And I literally, um, yeah, joined the acting school in stage one um, and thought it was brilliant and just kept I just stayed there and then um, I was very lucky to be cast in a few of the acting schools uh, performances productions um, and then I can't remember what happened um, <laughs> I just That's all right. doing that and I can't remember and then um, I'm also yeah. asking you this when you've got COVID and brain fog I know and I can't, remember, I know, I can't COVID remember and brain yeah, fog I, was, I totally get it <laughs> I think that was basically it yeah I just um stayed very much around the acting school and did a lot with it and then it's just kind of grown from there and um, I mean I love that you came into the industry at 48 and I think that it's so brilliant that people hear that that you know you get to come to this industry and 
yeah oh it's never too late yeah ever ever too late I would I mean I I would never have had the confidence to do it earlier anyway I mean I think you know sometimes I say oh god I wish I'd done this when I was 30 you know um but then when I was 30 I had no I had literally zero confidence and I would never have done it so um you know it was it was just perfect timing for me to to do it when I when I did it and and also, I think at 48, if you're a 48 year old woman, you've got a bit of a niche, you know, they're, because they're not a huge number necessarily of, of 50, I'm now 51, 50, you know, 50 plus year old women. So you've got a niche and, you know, you just play to your, play to your strengths um, and, and have a laugh and it is great. And yeah, it keeps me sane. <laughs> love it. I love it. Jen. Um, I just want to add to something that Catherine said there, which is that there are not only not enough women 50 plus in the industry, but particularly not enough women of colour. Yeah. Um, Because, you know, we're still going through the consequences of decades of the industry not doing the work. Um, So, yeah, I think that is a super important thing and is absolutely never ever too late yeah um never and again like in in my sort of acting tutor capacity uh like always happy to talk to folk about if they're wanting to find a route into all of this how they can do that and how you fit it into your life and how you make it work with whatever's going on with you um my path uh so yeah when I was Two and a half years old, my parents took me to see The Little Miss and Mr. Men on tour at the Hull New Theatre, I think it was. I tried to climb up on stage, had to be removed from the auditorium, and theatre has been the the main obsession of my life ever since then. It's the only thing I ever wanted to do. Um, I was a fairly typical sort of working class kid that didn't know about directors and playwrights and I'd never heard the word dramaturg in my life, you know. Uh, so I, I thought for a while I wanted to be an actor, eventually realised that no, no, I wanted to be a director after I'd spent a little time getting to know what they were, thought that was a thing I could do, uh, went and trained at Queen Margaret Um did my uh, postgrad in directing at Mountview, uh, came back from London uh, completely financially wrecked. <laughs> that was fun, um, as one does. Mm. And then sort of kicked around the industry a bit trying to make things happen. Um, it takes a while to, to build up contacts if you come from a background where you don't automatically have them. Um, takes even longer if you've got a lot of sort of funky mental health stuff going on, as I did. Um, but I got there eventually, sort of got to the point where where people started offering me work. And uh, that was very nice. I've, I've had a slightly odd path through the industry. I'm very much a theatrical multitasker. And I have a tendency to go where things feel interesting to me rather than where would necessarily be the best next career move. Um, I, I've got quite used to just sort of saying yes to things and seeing what happens. Um, essentially, an awful lot of my uh, an awful lot of my contacts come out of a gig that I did sort of five or six years ago, where I turned up to an open mic one night and read a short story I'd written about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer going off the rails due to fame and developing a ketamine addiction. Um, Brilliant. But a lot of what I'm doing now goes back to people that I met because of that event, because of that one story, and everything sort of 
spiraled from there. So I now just sort of, again, do things that interest me because you never know when the next ketamine Rudolph moment is going to be. (laughs) (laughs) I really love that. I think that's such a a brilliant way to navigate your way through this industry because there's so many, you know, there's success. Are you successful? Well, what is success and what does it look like? And I think it's individual and different for each person. And I think that that's really great that you go with what your gut tells you to do. Because a lot of the times we can take jobs and our whole body is going, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And that's it's far more important. And um, also I think really great that you mentioned about um, mental health because it's another side of the industry that isn't always talked about and it affects all of us. It's not just the performers that it affects. It affects stage crew, it affects directors, lighting designers, sound designers. It's everywhere. So it's really important that we acknowledge that. Um, so thanks for saying that, Jen. Um, um my last question to both of you, and I don't know if you listen to the podcast, but we ask everybody this question. <laughs> um, so we're called Persistent and Nasty to in connection with two political moments. One, Elizabeth Warren, nevertheless, she persisted when she wouldn't give way in her time and all of that. And um, reclaiming of the word nasty after uh, the previous president of the United States called Hillary Clinton a nasty woman for daring to give him facts. How dare she? And then there was a Twitter storm of hashtag nasty women. So Mm -hmm. we're all about the reclamation of words like bitch and moany and witch and coven. All those words that are used against us Mm -hmm. um, about reclaiming it. So we like to ask everyone, Jen McGregor, Catherine Bissett, what does the phrase persistent and nasty mean to you? Ooh. I love that Catherine's just laughed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. What does it mean to me? It's whatever it makes you think of, feel, and it can be anything. I'd say it's what you got to be and it's what you got to do. Yeah. I I kind of, it might be COVID brain, but I, <laughs> the first thing I thought of was, um, yeah, uh, pretty much what Jen said. Like, it's what, it's what women have to, well, women or anybody who isn't, you know, white male has to do to get fucking anywhere. It's one of the things we chatted about early on in rehearsals because obviously like when I cast Catherine I knew that like I've got a certain responsibility towards an artist of colour to to for one prepare her for possible responses and to let her know that I have her back in the event of anyone going oh why are you playing Oscar Mm -hmm. yeah there's there's always a question in my work about who do I want to annoy like who do who do I want to walk out? Who do I want to get a shitty review from? Um, and there's there's an element of holding your nerve that has to go with that because obviously you know for many reasons, uh, theatre companies, producers, uh, venues, all of that kind of thing tend to think more in terms of who do you want to make happy who do you want to like you who do you who are you going to get five stars from and I think the flip side to that question is you know yes who am I going to get five stars from but who am I going to get two who am I going to get one 
and who's not going to be there at the end. And that feels equally important to me. Um, and, and to me, that is that is the state of being persistent and nasty because I will continue to do this literally until I die. Yeah. And yes, many people think it's nasty to want to upset people with your work, but nothing's a one size fits all. Everyone's work upsets someone, even if people don't talk about it openly. But sometimes that's a good thing. None of us, it's art. Art is a personal thing. Like one person can love something and another person can hate it. And both of those can be okay in the same breath. Like, yeah. And I, I always think as well that if you're not upsetting anybody, you're not saying anything important. Yeah. Mm. And if you are, if you are someone who will look at Oscar Wilde and go, it offends me that a woman of colour is playing that character, is playing that figure, then well done. You are who I set out to annoy. Exactly. Mission accomplished. <laughs> Happy to annoy you. Thank you very much. Just a reminder for everybody where they can see the show, what time it's on at, how, when you run till, all of that. We are on at Greenside at Riddles Court, uh, up by the castle. Gorgeous, gorgeous venue. Worth coming for the chandeliers alone. Um, We're on at 2pm. It runs for 50 minutes. And we are on until the 27th, not on Sundays. Fabulous. And it is, in case anybody has forgotten, the masks of Oscar Wilde. Um, That's great. It's matchmaker matchmaker theatre productions. Yeah, I just a wee moment there and I was like, have I just added in extra words to your title? No, I have not. No, that's the title as I remember it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a real joy to talk to both of you. Um, Wishing you a great fringe and all the best. Well, um, Jen McGregor and Catherine Bissett, thank you again so much for joining me. And until next time, lovely listeners. Stay nasty. Stay nasty. nasty. (laughs) Yay!